You're listening to a sermon podcast from Agape Baptist Church, recorded live from our Sunday service. Good morning. Today's scripture is taken from 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 to 7, 13 to 17. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer. But then come again, come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, and one of another. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Test, test. All right. Good morning. Very good morning, everyone. The Lord bless you. All right. That must have been quite an uh, intriguing scripture reading. Wondering, hey, I thought we were talking about work. Was this sex and marriage and all that? We'll get to that later. All right. So now, at the beginning of the year, we took a few Sundays just to talk about what it means to be a royal priesthood, right? Uh, what it means to be priests unto God. One of the key things we learned was that priests are mediators, Right? So priests uh, stand between God and man, and they represent God before man, and they represent man before God. Right? So mediators. Now that's what we are called to do as priests. We are called to mediate, to represent God before man, and to represent man before God. Now we think about our work. In all likelihood, we probably spend far more time on our work than on anything else in our lives, right? Whether it's office work or it's uh, school-related studies, uh, whether it's homemaking and so on, our work takes up so much of our time, it takes up so much of our energy, uh, and our work is where we probably also make the most relational connections each week. And so our work makes up a big part of our lives. And I think it's crucial that we ask ourselves, What does it mean to be a priest at work? What does it mean to be a priest at work? No, at work, our role as priests 
is to represent God before man, right? And this could be our colleagues, our classmates, our children, and so on. And the truth is, our, our work is primarily man-facing, not God-facing. So what does it mean to represent God before man? Right? Are we just talking about evangelism? Right? Because for sure, evangelism is such an important part of uh, representing God at work, but it's more than that. Right? Representing God before man is about bringing the presence of God into your arena of work. Right? It's about bringing His shalom, His flourishing into your workplace. It's about reflecting God's rightful order into the brokenness in your work environment and into the brokenness of our world. But how do we do that? How can we represent God before man? Now, my prayer is that this sermon series over these three Sundays, that they would equip you and they would enable you to flourish as priests at work. So as we begin this morning, I want to start by asking us a question. Do you feel called to your work? Do you feel called to your work? You know, there are often two extremes when it comes to work, right? One extreme is that work is totally unspiritual to you, right? There's no sense of calling about your work. You know, when it comes to making decisions about which school or which job to apply for, you just weigh the pros and cons and then you decide, right? In this extreme, work tends to become dry, becomes meaningless, it becomes mundane. There's little sense of God at work. There's no sense of direction, there's no sense of calling. And the way you view your work perhaps is no different from uh, maybe your non-Christian uh, people around you. Now the other extreme is that work is totally spiritual, right? There's a heavy sense of calling about your work. And when it comes to making decisions about your work, you know, you seek the Lord's will through prayer, through seeking counsel. You may even ask God for a supernatural sign to show you whether this is the job or not. Now, in this extreme, work tends to become paralyzing, crippling, burdensome, because you are so fearful that you may not be in the right job. And you are so busy trying to figure out what is God's secret mission for you at work or at school that the work itself loses significance and meaning. And then when things don't go well, you begin to wonder, oh, have I deviated from God's will? Am I in the wrong place? And things like that. So there are two extremes. One is unspiritual. One is overly spiritual. Right? One views calling as unimportant. The other views calling as all-important. Now, is there any alternative? Now, that brings us to today's passage. Now, if you recalled earlier, today's passage sounds like it has everything to do with marriage and nothing to do with work, right? But here's the thing. Today's passage is actually not firstly about marriage. It is firstly about our Christian calling. And that's why, if you look at our passage, after all that talk about marriage, it concludes with verse 17, which says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. So this passage is not firstly about providing principles on marriage, although it talks about that, but it's firstly about providing principles 
on understanding God's calling for us, on understanding what kind of life God has assigned to us and what He is calling us to. So this morning, I want to show us uh, four priestly priorities when figuring out your calling at work. As we go through the passage, I'll review each of these four priestly priorities one by one. And as we see these four priorities, I'm trusting that God would help you rediscover a fresh sense of calling about your work, that He is calling you to be His priest, His mediator, His representative at work. Now, just a side note, uh, I want to mention that I'm not going to flash up every verse that I refer to up on the screen. Uh, so I really encourage you, uh, would you have your Bibles open uh, to 1 Corinthians 7 so that you can, it's easier to follow along with the sermon, you can refer to it as I mentioned the different verses. All right, so let's get into it. Now imagine that you are a first-generation Christian. All right, some of you are, but just imagine again that you are a first-generation Christian. The church you belong to is the one and only church in the entire city. And that church is only about five years old. Everybody in this church is also a first-generation Christian, right? There are, there are no second-generation Christians at this church. And all your church has is the gospel as well as the teachings left behind by the man who planted the church, right? The church planter. Now, this church planter has already moved on. He's gone on to plant more churches. And so in your church, nobody even has a Bible. Now, this is what the Corinthian church was like. The church was planted by the Apostle Paul, but after Paul left, there was trouble, there was division that started brewing. So a, a group of Corinthians who were faithful to Paul and who were concerned for their church, they wrote a letter to Paul telling him what had happened and asking him to address the issues in their church. And this is what Paul is responding to in our passage today. He says in verse 1, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, right, and this is going to mention one of the issues they wanted to address, and he quotes from their letter, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now this statement on sex was circulating within the Corinthian church. Right? And to us, at least to me, this sounds like the strangest statement on sex. Right? Like, what on earth are these Corinthians thinking? What are they talking about? Now, to understand this, we've got to understand what was happening at that time. And the popular teaching at that time was about pursuing spiritual fulfillment, spiritual satisfaction. The dominant idea at that time was that people are actually souls trapped in the human body, in the physical body, right? Souls trapped in the body. And so the soul is good, but the physical body is bad. And so the discussions, the, the teachings that were happening at that time among the philosophers, amongst the religious teachers, they were all about cultivating the soul and pursuing spiritual satisfaction. That was the hot topic of that day. One of the main ways to cultivate the soul and to pursue spiritual satisfaction was by fasting from sex, right? At that time, sex was thought of as a purely bodily appetite. I think today it might be thought of as the same way. And because sex is just connected to the body and that's it, sex was also seen as bad, as a bad thing and as bad for the soul. 
So the idea was that if you could gain mastery, if you could overcome the desire for sex, then you would grow spiritually. Then you would get closer to achieving spiritual satisfaction. Now, that was the popular teaching at that time, and it had come into the church. And many Christians were thinking, the Corinthian Christians, they were thinking like, this teaching must be true. Because aren't we called as Christians to live spiritual lives? Right? Aren't we called to find spiritual satisfaction in God? And so that's how that statement in verse 1 came about. Right? It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And so Paul is responding to that statement. Now the first response Paul gives is in verse 2, and he says, but because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Paul is saying that trying to fast from sex is not practical. It doesn't work because sexual temptation is a big problem. And God designed the desire for sex to be satisfied in marriage. And so Paul is saying people should get married, they should have sex with their spouses so that they can satisfy their sexual desires in a God-honoring way. But this might sound really weird, right? It's like if a couple came up to me in church and they said to me, Pastor Nan, we want to get married. And I say, well, that's wonderful. I'm so happy to hear that. Why do you want to get married? And the guy says, you know, oh, you know, she's a great woman and she really loves Jesus. Um, but Pastor, the truth is, we just really, really want to have sex. And then the, the fiance says, yeah, 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 we really want to have sex. <laughs> right? And it's very strange, right? Because marriage is so much more than just an outlet for sexual desire. But this is where we are reminded that Paul is not talking firstly about marriage. He's not trying to explain what marriage is about or, you know, the reasons for marriage. Paul is talking, I mean, if you want to know about that, Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 5. But here, Paul is dealing with the question of calling. Are the Corinthians called to pursue spiritual satisfaction even if it means being tempted by sin? Are they called to pursue spiritual satisfaction even if it means being tempted by sin? And Paul's response is no, they are not because there is a higher priority over their pursuit for spiritual satisfaction. And what is that priority? It is this, sanctification before satisfaction. That's the priority. Now, sanctification means growing in holiness, becoming more like Jesus. And you know, if you look just a few verses back, Paul has already highlighted this priority just a few verses ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. That's where he says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, so glorify God in your body. Now, as priests, we've got to guard the temple of the Holy Spirit. We've got to guard our bodies, this sacred space where God in the Spirit abides. And we are called to sanctification. Paul says this clearly, 1 Thessalonians 4, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, are you upholding this priority as you consider the jobs you are pursuing or you consider the causes and the schools that you've applied for? Even now, are you perhaps enduring a toxic work environment 
that is breeding in you all kinds of bad things, right? Maybe greed, maybe covetousness, maybe a lust for power, maybe a love for gossip, or maybe murderous, backstabbing thoughts. And you're doing, you're enduring all that because you believe this job will lead you to some kind of fulfillment or satisfaction. Are you in a cause or in a school that is hardening your heart day after day against God? Because every day you're hearing about how bad religion is, right? How, uh, how Christianity is a social construct, how it's oppressive and things like that. And maybe you're in, remaining in that environment because you think this is the cause for you, that this school is going to lead you to fulfill and satisfy your goals in life. Now, Paul's response here is very helpful. Pursue sanctification as a priority. If you need to, get yourself out of those environments that are tempting you towards sin. You know, someone else might be able to handle those temptations, maybe because of their temperament or their gifting and so on. Someone else might be able to handle it, but if you can't, then it's good to acknowledge that. And not only acknowledge that, act upon it. Because this is your first priestly priority, sanctification before satisfaction. So there's often confusion about our calling, and Paul wants to clarify that sanctification must take priority over satisfaction. And that's his first response. His second response comes in verses 3 to 5. Now, remember, all right, the Corinthians believe that they are called to pursue spiritual satisfaction, and to that end, they believe it is good not to have sex. Paul's first response is that they are not thinking about how dangerous sexual temptation is. If Christians are not allowed to satisfy their sexual desires in marriage as God intended, they might fall into sexual sin or worse. Now, Paul gives his second response, and I think it's helpful to mention that for Paul, sex assumes marriage. It's helpful to just mention that, right? Today, it's quite different. Even as Christians, maybe you feel like, you know, it's fine to have sex outside of marriage, but not for Paul. Paul assumes that sex only happens and should only happen within marriage. And so Paul points out a second practical problem. Now, let's say you're one of these Corinthians and you decide that you won't have sex anymore so that you can pursue spiritual satisfaction. You're going to abstain, you're going to fast from sex altogether. Paul's response here is, wait a minute, how about your spouse? Because if you are saying you're never having sex again, then you're also saying that your spouse is never having sex again. So in verse 3, Paul says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. Now, conjugal rights means uh, the right to a sexual relationship within marriage. And Paul says that every married person has given their sexual rights to their spouse. Right? In other words, you don't have the right to decide by yourself that you're never going to have sex again. Such a decision has consequences for your spouse, for your marriage, for your family, and you have no right to make the decision on your own. Now, to make this even clearer, Paul says, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And here, Paul comes to the core principle 
in this matter? Who has the authority to make such a decision? Who has the right to say, yes, in order to pursue my calling, I'm going to make this or that decision? And in this matter of fasting from sex, Paul says it is your spouse who has the authority. Right? Your body is under your spouse's authority. In verse 5, Paul says you shouldn't deprive, right? you shouldn't rob, you shouldn't deny your spouse of, their, uh, of her, his or her sexual rights in marriage. That's not your call to make. And here's the deeper application, the more important priority that Paul is pointing us to when it comes to our calling. And it is this, accountability before ambition. When it comes to pursuing your calling, your hopes, your aspirations, your desires, your ambitions, all of these things, they do matter. Right? I want to encourage you to take note of the ambitions that you have. Recognize them. Pray about them. See how the Lord will lead you. But before you go ahead and you pursue those ambitions, you want to consider who you are accountable to. So for example, if you are a youth and you have aspirations you want to pursue, maybe for your studies, for your future, you are first accountable to your parents. Husbands and wives, before you make major decisions regarding your work, you are first accountable to each other. Right? It's not right for you to make that decision by yourself and later inform your spouse. Right? That's not how it works. If you have children, if you have elderly parents, if you have family members who are dependent on you, you are accountable to them too, right? 1 Timothy 5 verse 8 says, and it's very serious words that Paul says, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I think it should be up on the screen. So before you decide to pursue your dreams, You've got to make sure that you can continue to provide for those who are depending on you. But ultimately, people, we are all accountable to our Lord Jesus Christ. That is our deepest accountability. Paul writes in Colossians 3, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. You are serving the Lord Christ. So question for us, are, are, are we serving our own desires or are you serving King Jesus? How are you honoring him? How are you upholding his interests uh, as you pursue your ambitions and aspirations? You know, when personal ambition takes priority over accountability, relationships are strained and they often get broken. And there's a tendency that you isolate yourself from the ones who love you and the ones who know you. And as a priest, if you are putting your personal ambition above accountability, you are not representing God to your colleagues and your classmates. You're not bringing God's shalom and order to your workplace or your work environment. Instead, you're only adding to the chaos and to the brokenness there. So that's the second response Paul gives to this issue of calling. Accountability before ambition. But then we come to verse 6, and at this point, it's like Paul just lets out a little sigh. And then he says in verse 7, Oh, how I wish that everyone was like me. Now, what Paul means by that 
is that he wishes that every one of us could be single and could be contented just like him. Paul is unmarried, but he's also not tempted, right? He has no spouse, he's not having any sex, but for him, it's no problem. And so in some sense, Paul understands what the Corinthian Christians were trying to do. He understands why they were trying to pursue spiritual satisfaction by fasting from sex. Paul understands because he himself is enjoying that spiritual satisfaction. Paul has no family responsibilities, and he doesn't struggle also with sexual temptation. And so Paul has all the space to enjoy rich fellowship with God. He has all the bandwidth to serve the Lord. His life is spent 100% devoted to expanding God's kingdom. So Paul is not just your average full-time pastor, right? His life is entirely spent upon the Lord. And I was just thinking that if five minutes before I came up on stage to preach this sermon, and I got a call from my wife saying that something had happened to my child, you know, I would immediately need to put my ministry aside to attend to my family. But you'd look at Paul, and you could say that he is not burdened by such obligations. Now, I'm just an average full-time minister, but Paul is a super full-time minister. Everything is given to God. And so Paul is saying, guys, I wish that all of you could enjoy such a life like mine. 100% devoted to the Lord, no distractions, no temptation, enjoying full spiritual satisfaction. But as Paul says this, he knows that this is not possible. Why? He says in verse 7, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. In other words, Paul recognizes that God has given him the gift of singleness, or as others might say it, the gift of celibacy. And so he's fine sexually, even if he never gets married. But that's his gift, right? But it's not everyone else's gift. And so I think this is a good place also to just pause and to encourage all the singles in our church. You know, in our church, we often... Uh, celebrate marriage and family, and rightly so, because the Bible calls us to uphold marriage in high honor. But the Bible also invites singles to share in this glory that Paul enjoyed in his singleness. Now, if you are a youth, and clearly this is a time in your life where you are to be single, right? There are still many years before you need to start thinking about marriage and sex and all those things. And right now, God is inviting you to enjoy your singleness in the same way that Paul did. Right? That's God's clear calling to you. If you are an adult and marriage is not something you are pursuing, right? maybe because uh, you don't have a particular longing for sexual intimacy or maybe because you have some, you're struggling with same-sex attraction and you know that sex and marriage with someone of the same gender is not God's will for you, or maybe because you know, you've stopped pursuing marriage due to the seasons and the circumstances in your life. Now, if that is you, would you consider that perhaps God has called you to singleness? That God is extending to you an invitation to serve Him to the fullest. And I mean 100 glorious percent, right? To enjoy fellowship with Him, with His Son, and with His Spirit to the fullest. And perhaps God is calling you to be like Paul, not only to be full-time, but to be super full-time in serving the kingdom of God. 
right? Maybe this is what God is calling you to in your singleness. And I would encourage you to embrace that calling. But here again, I remind us that Paul is not just addressing sex and marriage. Paul is actually giving us a principle for discerning God's calling for us and even for our work. Paul recognizes that not everyone is called to such a life of glory and grandeur like him. And in the same way, we too shouldn't be relying on our grand dreams and our visions of glory uh, to determine what God's will is for us. Instead, the highest priority is to discover and acknowledge gifting, your gifting, before pursuing your dreams for glory. When I was in school, my head was filled with all kinds of glorious purpose, right? I wanted to get into the best schools, the most prestigious causes. I also didn't want to do any work towards that end. And I just wanted it for the glory of it, right? But my God-given talents and my God-given gifts, they led me elsewhere. Now, similarly, God has given you different gifts and different talents. Where are those gifts leading you? Are you paying attention to them, right? Uh, maybe is there some kind of dissatisfaction with what God has given you, the gifts that he has blessed you with? Maybe you have become so obsessed with pursuing glory that you have become blind to how God has crafted you uniquely to be his blessing. Now, it is true that our society, and even in as a church, you know, we may subconsciously value and esteem certain giftings, right? Certain jobs, certain causes, certain schools as more, as higher than others. But what does the gospel say? The gospel tells us that however valuable or esteemed your gifts may be, you are fully accepted, you are fully loved, and you fully belong in the household of God regardless. The gospel says that Jesus has uniquely gifted you because he intends for you to play a unique role in bringing about flourishing in the church, in the family, in the community, in the city, and even in the nations. God has given you particular gifts and talents, and if you would learn about how God has gifted you, you would be able to better understand God's calling for your life. That's the third response that Paul gives to this issue of calling, gifting before glory. Now, as Paul comes to verse 8, he begins to briefly address certain groups of people in the church, right? So he's talk, he speaks to the widows, the widowers, he speaks to those who are still married. But there is one group of people that Paul gives special attention to. So there were these Corinthians who had converted to Christianity but they had done so by themselves, right? So their spouses didn't become Christian. Their family members didn't become Christian. And as these Corinthian Christians pursued spiritual satisfaction, which was what they believed was their calling, they found that their non-Christian spouse, their non-Christian family members, they weren't quite helping them in their calling. They were actually getting in the way. And it was hard to pursue spiritual satisfaction when your family had other beliefs and other priorities. And so these Corinthian Christians, they were considering, maybe I should get divorced. Maybe I should leave this non-Christian family behind. Right? It's a super hardcore way of thinking about things, right? But Paul writes to them and he tells them, would you consider the greater priority here? Now, Paul 
commands them that if their non-Christian spouses are willing to remain married, then stay married, right? Keep your family together. But if your non-Christian spouse decides to divorce from you, then let that spouse go. Now, either way, Paul says, who knows how God might lead your unbelieving spouse, your unbelieving family members, to saving faith in Jesus. If your spouse wishes to remain married, then you have every opportunity to demonstrate what a life transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ looks like. You have every opportunity to to teach your children the words of God, the way of God. But even if your unbelieving spouse says enough is enough and they want to walk out on you and divorce you, you are not enslaved. That's the word Paul uses in verse 15. You are not enslaved to having to orchestrate and manufacture things such that your family comes to saving faith. Now, even if your loved ones walk out of your life, Paul is saying, who knows how God might still save them even without you in the picture. Their future is still in his sovereign and mighty hands. Now, it is here that Paul reminds the Corinthians and reminds us of what a beautiful precious calling we have in Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 15, God has called you to peace. The Corinthians were so focused on trying to get their calling right, trying to fulfill their calling, that they had lost their peace. They had made their Christian lives all about their performance. They wanted to make the right decisions Uh, They become so conscious of the calling they wanted to fulfill that they had lost sight of the God who was calling them. Sex, marriage, faith in Jesus, all of these were God's good gifts to the Corinthians and these gifts were given for their peace. But as they obsessed about their calling, about having to get it right, about the sacrifices they needed to make, about all the things they needed to do, they had lost that peace and they had become enslaved. Now, people, isn't this true for us as well? We get so caught up in trying to figure out what our calling is that we lose sight of the God who is calling us. We get so anxious trying to make the right decisions, to take the right steps, to apply the right to the right places, to accept the right offers, that we've lost our peace. And this is the priority that Paul is impressing upon us in our calling, even at work. Peace before performance. People, God has called you to peace. Now we think back to the Garden of Eden and we remember the calling that God gave to Adam. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over every living thing. But when Adam sinned, what did God do? Did God revoke the calling he gave to Adam? I mean, if you think about it, that calling that Adam received was one of the most satisfying, the most ambitious, the most glorious callings ever. And yet at the same time, it was also one of the most straightforward callings ever. You know, if if God had issued Adam a job description, uh, a written uh, formal job description, it would have listed the following responsibilities. Number one, Build your family. Number two, expand the Garden of Eden. Number three, enjoy all this world has to offer. And number four, 
don't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just those four things, and that's it. Such a straightforward and such a compelling calling, but Adam failed in his performance. He made the wrong choices. He ruined everything. And so God has every right to revoke God's calling, but instead, as Adam hid himself from God in the garden, God calls out to him, Adam, where are you? And this is God's second calling to him. Despite Adam's poor performance, God was calling Adam to himself. Adam, come to me. I will restore your calling. But how does God fulfill this promise to restore not only Adam's calling, but our calling? He sent Jesus, his son, as the second Adam. Jesus gave up his satisfaction so that he could become our sanctification. And the book of Hebrews tells us that this is why Jesus faced all kinds of suffering and temptation, so that he could be made perfect as a human being, and so that he could become our perfection. But not only that, Jesus endured the cross for our sake. He made it his loving ambition to be struck down in our place, so that all our rebellion against God could be accounted for. Jesus laid aside his glory so that he could equip us, not just through the apostles and their teaching, but also by sending the gift of gifts, which is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And because of Jesus' performance, he has become our peace. Now, people, if you fix your eyes on Jesus, and if you would realize that Jesus' death on the cross is God's calling to you, to return to him, to trust in him, that he will restore your calling, if you would see the cross in that way, that would revolutionize your sense of calling even at work. You know, the world may continue to judge you based on your performances, right? Your resumes, your referral letters, your portfolios, your examinations, your appraisals, your social media, on and on and on and on. The world will continue to do all of that but once and for all, your resume will remain in Jesus Christ. He himself will forever and always be your performance, your excellence, your dignity, your acceptance, and your peace. And when you find yourself in that place, you can pour yourself into sanctification, pursuing sanctification, and guess what? You will be satisfied. You will joyfully put yourself and remain accountable, but that would only sharpen and perfect your ambitions. You will be able to accept your God-given giftings and talents for what they are, no matter how lowly the world thinks about them, and God will glorify you and His purposes in you. And in all these things, pursuing your calling will be a pursuit of peace, because all your identity, all your worth is anchored in Jesus' performance at the cross in your place. Jesus is our peace. Let's come before the Lord in prayer. Our Father, you are the giver of our calling, you are the shaper of our destinies. Lord, you are the one who has already written all the days of our lives in your book, Lord. You are the potter, we are the clay. 
Lord, we come and we just seek your forgiveness, Lord, for getting so caught up in our calling, getting so caught up in our ambitions at work, school, even at home, Lord. Forgive us for being so obsessed about having to take the right steps, about having to make the right moves, about accepting the right invitations, making the right connections. Lord, we become enslaved all over again. Lord, we ask your forgiveness, Lord. We have made the calling higher than the caller. And we ask your mercy also for losing sight of our Jesus, our Savior, the one who has restored our dignity and our calling. This Jesus who is himself our peace. Lord, as we think about Jesus, how through Jesus you are calling us to return to you, to trust you, that you will restore our sense of calling, our purpose, even at work. Lord, we remember the words that Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, for yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory forever and ever. Jesus, all of our calling is in you. You have given us your priorities through your word, but Lord, it is only you who can fill us with the peace we need to pursue those priorities, Lord. So Jesus, would you once again take your rightful place, be enthroned in our lives, be our prince of peace, and grant us to be your priests at work. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast. You can find more of our sermons online on our website at www.agape.org.sg.